electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hello and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Black Friday spending came in weaker than expected, but Cyber Monday is strong. And perhaps the strongest category of all is buy now, pay later. Is that a good sign? Is it a symptom of stress? Either way, it's a headwind for certain retailers. We'll discuss it all with the CEO of Klarna in an exclusive interview ahead. Plus the rise of thrifting. We'll talk to the CEO of Goodwill's digital storefront who says demand for secondhand items online continues to outstrip demand. And the latest read on housing. It shows those 8% mortgage rates kept buyers on the sideline last month. But there were two other data points in that report that may bring them back into the market. We'll tell you what they are and when it may happen. Let's start with the markets, though. As mentioned, Dow's down about 75 right now. Dom Chu has the numbers, Dom. So, Kelly, this is right now just about near session highs, believe it or not, because at the lows of the session, the broader S&P 500, which currently sits at 45.56, was actually down about 13 points. We're down about two to three points right now, just about flat on the session at the high. So, again, tilting towards the upper end of the trading range on an intraday basis. The Dow Industrial is 35,306, down 84 points off one quarter of 1%. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite at 14,292 is up 42 points and up one third of 1%. So it's actually green right now. That's the current state of play for the major markets. One place a lot of folks are keeping a close eye on right now is the gold trade, believe it or not. Since the lows that we saw kind of over the last couple of months here, we are now actually up about 10% on gold prices, which currently sit for futures at $2,010 per troy ounce. It's up about one third of 1%. But here's the trading range that people are watching. Is it getting ready to break out? That's going to be a key. So watch gold prices. And then the stock of the day right now, it's in real estate, but technology-related real estate. This is Crown Castle, which is up 4%. It's a company that owns a lot of cell phone towers, fiber optic networks, that infrastructure play. It's up 4% because Elliott Investor, Elliott Management, the activist investor, has now taken a stake in this company, roughly $2 billion worth, pushing for change to unlock value, executive board shakeups and leadership changes and whatnot. That is what's pushing Crown Castle higher up about 4% right now. So we'll keep an eye on gold, Crown Castle, and of course the at least move higher in the intraday trade so far, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. The holiday shopping season is now in full swing, and it's off to a somewhat bumpy start, with Black Friday sales coming in lower than expected. But one clear winner, buy now, pay later. According to Adobe Analytics, shoppers will fund more than $780 million worth of purchases with BNPL today alone. That's a 19% jump from last year, and total buy now, pay later sales for the month are expected to top $9 billion. Those numbers are giving publicly traded a firm a boost today. Its shares are up more than 10 percent. And my next guest knows all about it. His privately held company saw orders soar nearly 30 percent on Black Friday. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Klarna's CEO, Sebastian Semiakowski. Sebastian, welcome back. Good to see you. Good to have me. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us about Cyber Monday so far? 
Well, just like you mentioned, I mean, we were quite shocked to see the fantastic performance of Binopulator. We actually grew 30%. And I think in general, the numbers we found from Adobe was that as we saw a 7.5% increase. So it just shows how much market share Binopulator and Klarna is gaining in the market. I think it's both share of checkout, it's more merchants offering it, and more consumers choosing it in general. So yeah, very positive in general, but it is a more soft performance among merchants in general. And I think to some degree even, the numbers that we saw on Black Friday, I mean, I have seldom seen so good offers and discounts. So that's good for consumers. I'm not entirely sure to what degree that number was an ex extent of merchants being very, very pushy and trying to get stock uh, out uh, and offering some very aggressive discounting. Yeah, we have a, a lot of people have, have noticed the same thing. We wonder if that's why in a real term sales were actually down about 2%. Maybe that's reflective of that deep discounting. Where are the areas where you saw the biggest usage of buy now, pay later? Well, I think it's across the field. Like people have to remember that this is really a growing uh, momentum in the U.S. Because what 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 we have identified is what we call self-aware avoiders. This is 20% of the credit card market in the U.S. that are very tired of the fees, the hidden fees, the revolving accounts, a lot of the bad practices that banks have employed in regards to credit cards, and they're choosing this product as an alternative. It actually reminds me a little bit of it. You know, when I was a kid working at Burger King, you could press one for debit, press two for credit. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Give people the option to put on debit and then occasionally put on credit and use in fixed installments, short period of time. You see that everywhere. You see that in clothing and accessories. You see that in video games. You see that in TV and audio. And to give a little bit of sharing with you, PlayStation 5 did fantastic well uh, on that topic. Interesting. PlayStation 5, there, there's a good nugget. Okay, PlayStation 5 did very well. So one of the things we're curious about, of course, is just the extent to which people, uh, as they're out there shopping, are using these purchases to kind of reach a little bit versus just because of the convenience of spreading out payments. And it seems like it's displacing those retail credit cards that you mentioned. We've learned recently that some retailers, if my memory serves, Kohl's is one of them, had you know upwards of 40% or maybe more of their revenues coming from store-branded credit cards. Do you think you are disrupting that revenue source? Well, yes and no, to some degree, because what we also see, we work with a lot of retailers that have, in parallel with our offering, a co-branded uh, card, right? And it's, it's actually less cannibalization than you would expect, because these are different consumer audience groups that are using these different products. Uh, and the self-aware avoiders that we refer to, which is 20% of the credit card market, they would never sign up for those cards as well, because some of these programs, not all of them, but some of them hasn't necessarily been in the best interest of consumers. And they've been maybe slightly too aggressive, some of those programs, when it comes to try to push people to revolve uh, and, and buy quite costly from a financing perspective. So I think, again, like my impression of the digitalization that's happened to the world is that it's driving slowly, but very you know safely. It is increasing the, uh, the kind of perfect markets where it's basically high harder in the future to create services that rely on people by mistake falling you know into late fees or high paying high interest rates and so forth and there needs to be more transparent and open products where consumers take active choices and also understand the consequences of those choices so i think in general long term you will see a trend towards credit products like the one that we offer uh, in the market but again i'm not suggest i don't think necessarily that it will have that short-term implication that some people may fear. Yeah, and you know, as we are learning, it is 
those who are younger consumers and with difficulty access and credit use that tend to use buy now, pay later most frequently. So we, you know, there's some relationship with the credit bureaus, not maybe a full relationship. Maybe that's a pro, maybe that's a con. Um, but this is is kind of sitting in this gray area in terms of the regulatory space right now, it seems, and even maybe in consumers' minds. And because we haven't been through this kind of severe uh, down cycle yet, it's unclear what's going to happen if people come under stress. Although maybe you got a little bit of a stress test of that when inflation, you know, hit its peak last June. Well, I think also you have to remember that, like, I've been running this company now for 20 years almost. <laughs> and I've gone through it right. through a, a few financial, I wasn't that old back then, so I'm not that old yet. But 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 the point is that like we, um, you know, it was 2007, I saw that. One thing is when you have consumers, they choose this product because it is safer to use than a credit card. And these are very self-aware customers. And they remember that like our credit, our losses compared to credit cards are about 20, 30% below industry standards. Our average outstanding balance is 100 to $150 compared to $5,000 on a credit card. So it is a very different product. It's a fixed installment, short term, and so forth. And we see that that drives better uh, expected you know, loss rates and also hence better outcomes for consumers that are using these services. So I think compared to the alternatives that exist, this is in many ways a beneficial product. And also because we turn around the balance sheet 12 times a year, the interest rates changes doesn't actually affect our cost to that large of an extent as you have big balances. Quick last question. You know, I teased you about the IPO last time, so maybe I'll, I'll save that for an, another one. But on the consumer more broadly, as we're, all, we're getting some mixed messages over the last even three or four days here. What What's the bottom line for you? What shape is the U.S. consumer in right now? Well, I think, unfortunately, I am, you know, I, I tend to try to avoid to do horoscopes on these things because <laughs> I feel that every, like, you know, they're worth as much. But in my perspective, worked with retailers for 20 years, I see a fairly difficult outlook. I think I see Klarna gaining market share. I see us gaining share of checkout. But if I look at our, and I talk to all the thousand, you know, we have 500,000 retailers. I don't talk to all of them. I talk to a lot of them. My impression is that there's been a little bit over discounting. And so far, it's been a cost of uh, crisis of cost for these consumers due to infla inflation, due to interest rates, yes. et cetera. But what AI could potentially lead to in the coming six to 12 months is an increase in unemployment, especially among middle income people who have not been used to being there. And that's a very different outlook, which I find, unfortunately, not entirely unlikely considering what I'm seeing happening in tech companies across the world and the layoffs that we see in Silicon Valley. So I think we are moving into potentially a little bit more tough macroeconomical conditions in the U.S. as well. well I didn't expect a warning about AI displacing jobs, uh, but I, I'm glad to hear that that's, well, I'm, I'm terrified to hear that's top of your mind. It's, it's an interesting data point. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us today. Really good to check in with you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Sebastian Semiakowski of Klarna. Meantime, we've had another Treasury auction. Five billion in, 55 billion in five-year notes, I should say. Rick Santelli is here to track the action for us. Rick, how did it go? You know, it went a, a lot better than the two-year note auction, which was a bit below average. The grade? Well, a B is in boy. 55 billion, as Kelly said, of five-year notes, yielding 4.42% at the Dutch auction, which is about a half a basis point below the one issue market. We call that stops through. It's the exact opposite of tailing. It's a good thing. And if you look at all the metrics, well, they were a bit deceiving, slightly below average bid to cover and indirect bidders. Uh, direct bidders was very much in line, but what really looked good was the amount the dealers took. Unlike the two-year auction, dealers took 
a little over 9%. That is the smallest amount since the first auction of the year in January. 10 auction average, 13%. So 4.42, that means we now have 109 billion of the 148 billion already done. Tomorrow will be the last leg of seven-year notes to the tune of 39 billion. And do keep in mind, the shorter auctions seem to be a bit better, even with the below average two-year what makes the market a bit nervous is the longer maturities. So whether it's tomorrow's seven or in a couple weeks, we get the tens and thirties. Those may really tell the tale of how aggressive investors want to be on longer dated debt obligations. Kelly, back to you. Thank you, Rick. Another sigh of relief from the bond pits uh, for today, at least. We appreciate it, Rick Santelli. Let's get back to stocks, which are still at session lows. Well, ac- I'm sorry, coming off session lows and actually about session highs right now with the Dow down 67 uh, is breaking what has been about a four-week win streak. And that appears to be powered somewhat by better-than-expected third-quarter earnings. 82% of companies have beaten estimates, the most in two years, but only 61% beat on revenue. And that gap that you see on your screen there is the widest in nearly eight years. Earnings overall were up about 7% from a year ago, while revenues were up only 1.5%. But my next guest says he's not worried about corporate profits or the consumer going forward. Neil Hennessy is here. He's chief market strategist and portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. Good to see you. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. What kind of mood are you in? What, what do you think about it? It's got the holiday the, season. I'm always in a good mood. The, and don't you think that generally people have gotten a little more constructive on the market than they were a month or two ago? Well, I think you got to put it in perspective. Like I've always said, you're talking about eight companies have run this market, and, and that's it. And then all of a sudden, what, two weeks ago, went to the Magnificent Seven. And if you go back to 1960, too young for you, they made a movie, The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> and if you go and check that out, there are only three left at the end of the movie. Uh-oh. So now you start to think, okay, who's going to be left out of the Magnificent, Magnificent, Magnificent Seven? But there's 492 other companies in there. Like you're looking on the S&P. Mm-hmm. They're beating earnings. They're down on revenue. means they're control, controlling their costs. They're looking to the bottom line. And that's where the cash flow is good. That's where the profits are good. That's where you're going to have higher dividends, buybacks. The reason I'm, I'm kind of pounding the drum on the revenue side of it is because I wonder if that's a leading indicator. In other words, if you see revenue, both the number of beats slowing, but also just nominal 1.5% revenue growth means it's negative in real terms. So that's going to be a conundrum, isn't it, for companies going forward? Well, revenue's a truer number than earnings per share. I will give you that, and that's what we always follow. So uh, slowdown in revenue is, is a, to be expected because the economy's not grown as fast as it was. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these companies, most all of them, don't understand looking to the future and say, well, if we can put the cash away and there's so much cash on the sidelines, mm-hmm. even for the consumer. I know you were just talking about the seg- segment before it nine, ten billion dollars in purchase is a fair amount of money in one day. Yeah. OK, so the consumer's in good shape, maybe a little fragile with their psychological uh, outlook. But they're in good shape. You're going in the holiday season that historically has always been good, no matter how much negative news comes out. <laughs> which companies, I know you tend to look at some under the radar names, which are the ones you feel most comfortable, confident about right now? Well, I don't feel comfortable with those eight. Yeah. Because essentially, on, on average, you're selling at 11.5 on a price to sales. Wow. Which is 10 times more than we would ever pay. Yeah. So you could look at a Sprouts 
which is Farmer's Market. Now, I hadn't been in a Sprouts till just the other day. I'm not sure but I ever have. They're very clean, very nice looking. It's just a Farmer's Market inside. The And you think about uh, budgets being squeezed. Well, there's a lot that you can do with fruits and vegetables and pasta. You got to have the <laughs> pasta in there. But essentially, you can save money and make great meals. No, and Farmer's Market makes almost $3 a share and doesn't pay a dividend. Wow, because what you've said is actually the same that we heard from a B of A analyst last week who said he's noticed by um, cart turns that people are leaving the inside of the grocery store and going to the outsides because the outsides have seen more deflation. The inside, they're still paying 30% more than they used to for cereal, for instance. Well, that's true. I mean, you you see inflation is starting to flatten out, but that doesn't mean prices are going to come back to where they were three years ago. Right. Meat's up, poultry's up, everything's up, and it might flatten out, and that might be a good inflation number, but that's not the real number that's hitting the family. But I like that Sprouts is one way you think people could play this. Where else? Where else are you, you excited know, about? Um, it's not really exciting. It's sort of like, you know, a coin-operated laundry machine, uh, laundromat, but essentially you could look at Comfort systems, hmm. and it's just uh, air conditioning, heating, ventilation systems for commercial, industrial, government jobs. It's not exciting, but they make almost eight dollars a share in earnings wow. and pay a dollar in dividends. Wow! And so you start to look at these type of companies, not the high flyers, because we've seen that before. We saw it in two thousand seven, eight in real estate. You saw it in the dot com in the late nineties. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So going into 2024, I mean, I think of you guys as basically, you know, this is all about stocks. Are there any strategies, though, other than just your typical kind of looking for value in names? Like, div- I mean, is there anything that kind of jumps out to you as an opportunity kind of thematically right now? Thematically, no. Um, my, my biggest problem is, is where people are just looking at an index mm-hmm. and they're going into an index and just looking at the S&P 500. They're not all good companies. 40% of them are supposedly are losing money. So that's 200 of the 500 gone. Or you think if so, everyone just holds them, you know, is there a premium in, built into that as a result? Leverage is a two-edged sword. And when you look at like Apple is 7.5% of the S&P, thir- over 13% of the NASDAQ, that's one company that's, you know, would you, you have to ask yourself the question, would you take 13% of your portfolio and put it into one company? Would you? And would that? Would, would Hennessy funds? Absolutely not. Okay. That would not be the smartest play in the book. <laughs> Neil, for those who want to zig while everyone else is zagging, thank you so much. It's good to check in with you. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Neil Hennessy with Hennessy funds. Still to come, Shopify is an early Black Friday winner. Its shares are up 5% after sales on the platform soared 22% that day alone. And my next guest sees more upside from here. He'll tell us how much more next. And the ITV Home Construction ETF is on pace for its best month since May of 2020. But taking a breather today after the housing report put some pressure on the builders, new home sales that is. There was some good news for home buyers though. We'll tell you why ahead. Dow's down 63. We're back in a moment. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Shopify are up today and on pace for their best month ever, although they're still 50% below their 2021 levels. Black Friday sales, record highs for the platform, up 22%, far outpacing the 2.5% overall increase in spending this year. Here's Shopify President Harley Finkelstein on Squawk on the Street this morning. But one of the things that's very interesting is that sales made by merchants on Shopify using our point of sale system, which is in store, has grown by 33% since this period last year. So I don't think it's just online only. I think it's this intentionality where consumers want to buy from their favorite brands. And our next guest sees more upside as Shopify continues to win share. Joining us is Ken Wong. He's an analyst at Oppenheimer. Ken, it's good to see you. And I I should add, we're only talking about 10% upside for your price target. But what's your what's your gut tell you? Yeah, th- thank you for having me on. Look, I, th- I think a lot of the uh, the upside right now is dependent on what happens, kind of obviously Q4, looking out to fiscal 24. Uh, so with sentiment going into holiday season, initially a little more cautious, like I think these results definitely show that you know, we could potentially be looking at upside to our numbers, likely upside to consensus numbers, which are looking for growth closer to 17% GMV, and uh, uh, they, they display 22% growth you know, as of Black Friday. Wow. Did that number surprise you up 22%? Is that, I mean, you know, I know when they're in the early, early growth stages, we'd be like, yeah, of course, but how, just give me some context around that figure. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of a surprise. Uh, Consensus expectations were for the fourth quarter GMV to be closer to 17%. Uh, I think we had been hearing from merchants, from partners, uh, and, and even from consumers that a lot of shopping was starting earlier in the holiday season than right. just purely during this Black Friday, Cyber Monday stretch. So our expectations were potentially that it would come in a little light of the 17% that people were expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to see a 22% number, uh, definitely you know meaningfully higher than anticipated. And I think some of this is also not purely just online. Right. We noticed that on POS, which is their, their kind of retail product, we saw growth actually accelerate to 33% from 27% last year. So clearly, this is this is more of a Shopify thing than just purely a, a retail dynamic. Not to go on a tangent, but it is so I, I never think of Shopify as, as being something I'd experience in store. But the fact that they're in store volumes, uh, point of sale volume, were up 33% when we know in store traffic uh, or sales were only up, I think, 1.1%. Overall, tell me where would I encounter Shopify at the checkout? Do what I know as the consumer. Yeah, yeah, I think as a consumer, you probably wouldn't realize it, but I think some of uh, some of the consumers' favorite brands, whether it's Alberts or Warby Parker, uh, are, are they have both an, a big online and an offline presence now. Uh, I think what's more important is Shopify is no longer just a, a platform for let's say online first, hybrid second. Uh, over the last 18 months, we've seen a much bigger push to just pure offline retailers. So this is something that, again, I think the trend is still early, uh, but 
we shouldn't just purely think of these guys as an e-commerce direct to consumer type of a play. Right. I, I can, sometimes I think, you know, it benefits them if we think of them that way instead of something more traditional. But I totally take your point. Let me ask, as you across the rest of your coverage space, what are your big conclusions coming out of Black Friday, basically Cyber Monday now? Look, I, I think it's a, it's a, it should be a net positive for companies levered to to online sales, e-commerce. We also cover some more down market competitors in Wix and Squarespace, GoDaddy. I assume that they likely are also seeing kind of more upbeat sales trends. Uh, further up market, we have big commerce. They also put out some Black Friday, Cyber Monday uh, details that suggest uh, double-digit growth on, on their platform. Uh, across the, that entire group, and I assume some in the e-commerce world, should probably see a bit of an uplift based and on what we saw over the weekend. How And, and finally, how much more is... You know, when people are looking through the numbers and going, wow, you know, eight and a half percent, to me, it feels like, well, yeah, we're still at such a nascent stage of market share growth or penetration of online to to in-store that we should still expect to see numbers at least that strong, I would think, but maybe I'm being too blasé. I mean, how much more sort of runway is there for these online players to grow in terms of the total retail market in this country? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, right now, it's a percent of retail mix in the U.S. They they're still in the in in the high teens. Uh, I imagine that we should continue to see that penetration number move up. You know, at, at least into the 40, 50 percent over time. Wow. So uh, I don't think offline retail is completely going away, but clearly, uh, from a consumer user perspective, like uh, whether it's on your phone, your tablet, your 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 PC device. Uh, I think we're finding that more and more consumers are are, are purchasing off the couch than in store. <laughs> uh, and I think more importantly for Shopify, it's not just purely a, a growth dynamic. Right? This is the first year they're going to have profitability. We're assuming that by fiscal twenty four, they might they might be looking at at mid teens margins, you know, billion dollars of cash flow, and that number should continue to grow and attract a a, a different investor profile than just purely a, a growth oriented mindset. No, I think I read that something like half of the online purchases Black Friday were made on a smartphone, which makes sense. You know, <laughs> that's just that's where we are. We're on the couch. That's what we're doing. Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. I yeah, appreciate you having me on. Thank Ken you. Wong of Oppenheimer. Coming up, shares of the thrift chain Savers Value Village are actually down nearly 40% since its IPO back in June. They are up about 10% over the past week, though. Is thrift the gift this holiday season? We will get another read on that from thrifting giant Goodwill next. And buyer's pain, sorry, builder's pain, buyer's gain. We're going to look at the latest housing report and what you need to know if you're looking to buy or sell this winter season. The exchange is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said that the U.S. does not know details on the status of all the American citizens who were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. Kirby estimated that less than 10 Americans are still being held hostage. He added that it is unclear whether they are being held by Hamas or another group. 
A Southwest Airlines passenger was hospitalized on Sunday after opening the plane's emergency exit hatch and climbing onto the wing at New Orleans International Airport. Officials said the plane was still in the skyway and not moving at the time. The sheriff's office said the investigation has been referred to federal authorities. And the new Hunger Games prequel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, led the box office over the Thanksgiving weekend. According to studio estimates, it held on to the top spot with $42 million in ticket sales. Napoleon came in second with $33 million. Disney's Wish finished third with a disappointing take of $31.7 million. Kelly, the one I'm looking forward to is Maestro with Bradley Cooper. Mm, nice. Look it up. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you shortly. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, home prices dropped dramatically last month and inventory rose. The 30-year fixed mortgage trade also trended down somewhat. 7.3% there. It's practically a steal. Is the stage set for buyers to get back into the housing market? We will ask. And check out shares of iRobot falling this hour after the European Commission said Amazon's proposed deal for the company may restrict competition in the robot vacuum space. The news triggered, triggered several volatility halts for iRobot, which is now down more than 17% at just over $34 a share. This one's been going on for years at this point. Let's get a quick check on markets as well. Dow's down 56. It's almost session highs, while the Nasdaq remains positive now by a quarter of 1%. 10-year yield around 440 after that pretty strong five-year auction top of the hour. S&P down 200s. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bad sign for the builders. New home sales falling more than expected in October, even as prices dropped. Let's get out to Diana Olick for the latest numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, and the builders' stocks dropped initially on this, but they seem to be recovering a bit, kind of flat to slightly lower, as they're really more influenced these days by lower interest rates. But as you said, sales of newly built homes dropped a much wider than expected 5.6% in October from September. And September's figure was revised down significantly. Still, sales were nearly 18% higher year over year. Now, this read is really the most in- recent indicator of home sales because it's based on account of signed contracts, not closings. So the deals were actually in in October, and that's when mortgage rates shot over 8% after hanging in the low sevens for most of September. Builders have been buying down rates aggressively for their customers, many saying they're getting them into the 5% range. But we also saw aggressive price cuts in October, with the median price down nearly 18% year over year. Some of that may be the mix of home selling, that is smaller, lower-priced homes, but builders have also said they're reducing prices to get buyers in. Now, the inventory of newly built homes also shot higher to a 7.8 month supply from 7.2 in September. Mortgage rates have pulled back this month a bit. The 30 year fix now around 7.3%, but we are heading into the historically slowest season for home sales, even though the pre freeze, Kelly, seems to have started already. True. Diana, stay with us. I would talk about this a little bit more. My next guest says if mortgage rates stay above 7%, home sales will continue to falter. Joining me now is Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi. Mark, it's good to see you. And I want to actually start on the pricing because we haven't seen that budge much. But if I'm not mistaken, Diana just said it was down 17% year on year. What do you make of that? Yeah, builders are aggressive. Uh, I think the median price uh, is close to 400K. If you go back a year ago, it peaked at close to 500K. So that's, you know, 15, 20%. And that goes to the buy downs that Diana mentioned, and uh, they're just being a lot more aggressive. And that's why new home sales have kind of hung tough. They're, you know, they've kind of leveled off, but they really haven't declined all that much. Most of the 
weakness in sales is on the existing side where uh, homeowners are much more reluctant to cut price. So builders are doing what it takes to, to move those homes. Are they, Diana, going to translate those price declines into the existing home sales market, you think? No, I actually don't think so because you've got that supply and demand situation there where there's just nothing for sale on the existing home market because you have potential sellers saying, why would I trade my 3% rate for even a low 7% rate? But I'm interested, Mark, um, we are seeing more uh, rent declines in both apartments and single-family rental homes. Do you think that's going to juice the market or have renters, because they've been paying so much up to date, not have enough savings to get into the housing market, whether it's existing or new homes? Yeah, you're right. Rents have gone flat to down, particularly at the high end of the market. You know, these big uh, multifamily towers are going up in, in the big urban centers in the Northeast, Chicago, on the West Coast, and that's putting downward pressure on rent. And that, I think, is having some impact on uh, on new house prices and at the high end of the single-family housing markets. You mentioned single-family rental. Uh, you know, there we've already seen some weakness. So, I, I, you know, I think that is a, a sign that uh, we will see uh, the weakness in price prices kind of broaden out here. Ultimately, all of this is going to uh, make it more difficult for existing home buyers to not cut price. I think if, at some point they're going to need to sell their home for because due to life events, divorce, death, children, job change. And when they do, they're going to have to cut price because they're going to get a lot more competition from other sources of housing. Hmm. So you think those other sources of of, of housing, because a lot of people would say, you know, the home buyer is idiosyncratic. And, uh, you know, even cheaper rents, for instance, won't really be much competition. No, it's comp- well, maybe, on the, you know, you're, you're right to some degree, but I think it's on the margin. You know, single family rental. I mean, people, you know, they can get the same kind of lifestyle in a single family home in rent. And if they get a better deal there than uh, than if they go out and try to buy, they'll do it. And also, you know, more options. I mean, as Diana pointed out, there's a whole lot of inventory out there for existing homes. So I think we are seeing people uh, use the single family rental option as an alternative. So it, it is competition, not one for one, but you know, I think it will play a role. Did we ask you before, Mark? I can't remember. I know Diane and I, I thought it was maybe where we said, what's the number? What's the trigger where you think that a lot of inventory comes flooding back onto the market? It kind of unlocks the buyers who might be waiting to move. Is it 6% mortgage rate handle? Is it 5%? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think Diana was trying to create some drama last time I was on. <laughs> what? I can't me? Quite remember. Drama? She disagreed with me. Mark, I disagree with you, but I don't think she really did. I'm not really sure. I can't quite remember. <laughs> no drama. Never. No, <laughs> no I drama. just think, I don't think 6% is really going to, I think maybe low oh, 6%, but I think 5%, that's where the builders say that they're having to, you know, cut the the rate down to, because look, 7% is not doing it. We saw it go from 8% to 7%, and you still saw new home sales drop. So I think you got to get into the high fives, or at least the very low sixes. Mark, you? Yeah, I mean, obviously five is better than six, no doubt about it. But I think, you know, everybody should get used to five and a half to six, because that's where mortgage rates are going to settle in long run. I mean, the 10-year Treasury yield, probably four, four and a half, and then a you know, typical spread of mortgage rates above Treasury would put them at five and a half to six. So that's kind of long run where mortgage rates are going to settle in. So I think that's kind of sort of where we all have to get used to, to seeing. Uh, I mean, I suspect you're right, Diana. You know, six uh, things start to come back to life, but I don't think we get home sales back to anywhere close to where they were, you know, uh, pre all this until we get back down to closer to five, at least for a while. The, the other thing that's got to happen here, obviously, is we do need to see some weakness in house prices. I mean, if house prices don't come in to any degree, we're going to have to see even lower mortgage rates to get sales up. So we need, and no recession, obviously, and incomes have to continue to rise. So, you know, all those three things 
will determine, you know, exactly, you know, what has to happen with rates and, and with prices. Yeah, no, I thought I remembered some drama about it. I'm glad. I remember <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, uh, Diana, what are you hearing from the industry as well about, OK, we're entering the quiet sales season now, but is 2023 going to be the nadir here? Can it get any worse than what we've seen overall so far? <sighs> Look, I, I don't want to say things can always get worse. They can always get better. But I think, you know, the builders are still tackling a lot of other issues. That is high costs for land, labor. Material prices have come back a little bit, but you still have high interest rates. And that makes deal making difficult, um, especially for the home builders. So, you know, I think it's going to be rough going. I think what's going to make 2024 a better market is if sellers finally say, OK, I've had enough. Maybe we're in the low sevens or the high sixes and I'm ready to put my house on the market. But you are not going to see home prices on the existing side, at least come down until you see more supply. It's as simple as that. There's a lot of demand out there. There continues to be more household formation. And that means we just need more houses for people to buy and sell to make the better market. Then just, let's just put a point on this market. Maybe I'm going to just open up a whole other. Is a is a good economy bad for the housing market? Or, or good for the, you know, and I, I certainly yeah, well, think a good, well, but then it keeps mortgage rates. It's like I yeah. can't even tell which way the wind is going to blow for home builders. Uh, you know, that stocks are still up 40 percent this year. Well, I, I put it this way. A necessary condition for a good housing market is people have jobs. You know, unemployment has to stay low. Incomes have to continue to rise. Without that, nothing else works. So that's a necessary condition. It would be nice if in, in interest rates come in, and they will, you know, as, as long as inflation continues to moderate and all signs are that it will continue to do so. And once the Federal Reserve makes it clear that it's going to start cutting interest rates, and I suspect that's probably by next summer when inflation looks like it's going back to target, that's when mortgage rates will really start to come in. Those those spreads I mentioned between mortgage rates and treasuries, which are very, very wide for lots of uh, complex yeah. reasons around prepayment risk, they'll start to come in in uh, you know uh, the, the housing market will come back to life. So we need a, we need a good economy. Uh, but we also need to see inflation come in and interest rates come down. All right. We'll leave it there. Drama free. Mark Zandi, <laughs> Diana Olick. Thank you both very much. Coming Take up care. for the first time in nearly 20 years, the Toyota Prius is Motor Trend's car of the year. Maybe a surprise to some, but the sales just don't lie. We'll talk about how long hybrids can stay hot. We'll talk about that next. As we go to break, let's do a quick check on shares of Roku, up 7.5% today on an upgrade to buy from boutique firm Cannonball Research. They see spending on connected TVs growing 16% this year. Roku always a volatile one to the upside today. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Don't tell Tesla or Rivian or Lucid, but hybrids are outpacing EVs in sales once again. Phil Lebeau joins us with the latest. Phil, what do we, lo- what do we know? Well, Kelly, what we've seen is hybrids have been picking up in popularity over the last 12 months, and they are now outselling EVs here in the U.S. Now, this is not expected to last forever, but for the foreseeable future, until you see lower-priced EVs come in, what you're going to see is that hybrids are outselling EVs. They're almost 10% of the market now. We continue to see internal combustion engine vehicles. Yes, they dominate the market, but they're now under 80% in the last couple of months. It won't be long until you see that fall even further. The average price paid for a hybrid is the key denominator or the key differentiator here between why hybrids are hot and EVs are not. The average hybrid sells 
sells for just over $41,000, according to J.D. Power. The average EV sells for over $51,000. That's a ten grand difference. And that's a primary reason why you see hybrids much more in demand than EVs right now. Again, that's expected to change over time. Take a look at shares of Toyota and Honda versus GM and Ford. And the reason we're showing you this is that Toyota and Honda have quietly put together a pretty nice year for investors. There's a clear difference in performance for shares of Toyota and Honda versus Ford and GM. And yes, we realize that the UAW negotiations are a big part of that. But it's also the fact that GM and Ford have allocated billions of dollars towards going electric. And that is one thing that investors are looking at and saying, when are we going to see a payoff there? Speaking of electrics and speaking of Tesla, don't forget that on Thursday night, the first Cybertrucks will be delivered, Kelly, and it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is. Look, we're not expecting a ton of these to be out on the road. They're only going to deliver 10 Thursday night, but it's the beginning of deliveries and then a very gradual ramp up in production uh, going into 2025. Mid to late 2025 is probably when we see full production, annual production for the Cybertruck. I just love the the triumph, you know, of the of the Prius. What, what is the criteria for car of the year? Is it sales or is it more of a just general kind of car of the moment kind There's of a, Yeah, award. it's not sales. It's not sales. Because if it was sales alone, you'd look at the RAV4 hybrid. Um, look, there are newer models and Motor Trend, much like other uh, auto magazines, car and driver, etc. They have their own criteria in terms of why they pick a particular vehicle to be car of the year. The fact that it's the Prius, that does speak to the popularity of, of hybrids right now. Um, but again, How? it's not strictly sales. I'm just going to stick in a quick one, Phil, because I'm, I'm, I'm asking as a shopper now, How, what would be my gas mileage with a hybrid, with, with the Prius? You know, my, my Well, it depends on range. what you get. If you get, yeah. if, you get a, if you get a gas electric hybrid versus a, a Prius Prime, which is a plug-in uh, hybrid electric vehicle, um, the range is going to be a little bit different, but, but far greater. I mean, I don't know what the latest mileage is, Kelly, yeah. but it's far greater than if you bought yourself an internal combustion engine vehicle. Right, well, I, I don't know, 40 to 60 miles That's what I thought about, 50, yeah. Equivalent to a gallon, so, something like that. Sounds pretty good. Phil, thank you. We really appreciate it. For now, our you Phil LeBeau. Still ahead, $53 billion. That's how much the secondhand and resale market is expected to reach by year end. We're talking to the CEO of Goodwill's Digital Storefront, which just launched last year, about that coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of thrift store operator Savers Value Village are down 38% since their late June IPO, despite the shift to value as consumers look for bargains. My next guest says that's been changing this holiday season with a surge in sales of secondhand goods online. Joining me now is Matt Kness, CEO of Goodwill Finds. That's the digital storefront of Goodwill. Matt, I didn't know Goodwill had gone digital. Welcome. Great to be here, Kelly. Yes, uh, Goodwill is uh, not... New to online, uh, the companies across the country that make up the Goodwill Network have been working as a third-party seller in online resale for decades, but mostly through uh, storefronts in Amazon and eBay. If you think about buying a used book on Amazon, uh, it's probably coming from a Goodwill. <laughs> There's also an auction site called Shop Goodwill uh, that is run by one of the, uh, the network members. But uh, we launched this new venture last year called GoodwillFinds.com uh, last October uh, in a response to a lot of the new players in the space, ThreadUp, RealReal, Real, Poshmark, 
yeah. Depop, StockX, et cetera. But I'm impressed uh, so you guys have the resources. Yeah, I, I'm on it now <laughs> looking for Crocs because, you know, the kids' uh, feet are growing so fast and you kind of know what you're getting there. So how does this work? How, you know, this feels like an expensive undertaking that I assume all of your stores are participating in or maybe only some. Goodwill has been around for over 100 years. It's made up of over 150 independent nonprofits. We launched with four last October. We're now at 14. Uh, we should be at 40 by uh, end of next year, looking to have all 150 plus on the platform uh, as soon as possible. Um, and it's going great. We did 25 million in demand our first year, which for a brand new e-commerce startup is uh, a really great result. And we did uh, over 200% uh, comp uh, this Black Friday holiday selling period compared to last year when we first launched. So uh, we are participating in this large and fast-growing category of online resale, uh, and we're doing it on behalf of uh, the pioneer of circularity in uh, retail, uh, this Goodwill uh, mission that is so important to millions of people across the country that uh, pr that rely on Goodwill services in local communities. Yeah, I know that the Goodwill in Buena Vista, Virginia, I think I spent, you know, 25% of my time growing up. It was just so much fun. It was the kind of the original treasure hunt. And now anytime I can get, you know, give stuff and try to give it there to kind of complete that, that whole paying it forward thing. So remind me, how does the business, so, so what's the business, you guys are nonprofit, right? So what happens if I buy, for instance, like I see these shoes, you know, size, they don't usually have size 10. If I pay $30 for these Michael Kors shoes online right now, where does that money go? Yeah, Kelly. So we are a nonprofit as well. So we are the only nonprofit in this online um, uh, space. And uh, we rely exclusively on donations that are dropped off at thousands of stores and donation centers across the country. Uh, so um, we rely on, on the goodwill of people who bring us their goods. And then uh, the individual goodwills will list them in our catalog. We uh, sell them through our website, goodwillfinds.com. And then all net proceeds from our sales go back to the Goodwill community where the item was donated. Uh, so we really believe that we're pioneering a model of circularity where individuals get rewarded by donating to their local Goodwill and having uh, all the proceeds go back to support other people in our community who rely on Goodwill services. Yeah, it's your... I will say to you, go ahead. with respect to price, yeah, with respect to price... Uh, online demand and resale is outstripping supply. And so there's a real um, battle that has heated up uh, across the industry to get uh, access to high value supply. And this is uh, not just players like Savers in the brick and mortar space and some international players like Megapaka that are entering the U.S., but hmm. also brands and retailers that are deciding how to just ethically dispose of all their returns and unsellables. Well, Matt, thanks so much for bringing it to our attention. Of course, always good to just get your sense on the consumer as well and you, the strength that you guys are experiencing. Appreciate your time. Good luck this season. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. Matt Kness with Goodwill Finds. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive. 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.